You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. There are increasing numbers of Christians who are turning to what I call Christian Universalism. Others fear the Universalist label and identify as believers in ultimate redemption or apocatastasis. Whatever term we may use for ourselves, we find we are in a unique situation. We want to affirm the core beliefs central to the historic Christian faith. We highly value scripture and tradition. We especially love early church figures like Gregory of Nyssa, who participated in the formation of the Nicene Creed and who fought against the heresies of his day, but who also was confident that all would finally be saved in Christ. So we feel ourselves to be Christian to the core, but our rejection of a hell of eternal separation and annihilation or eternal conscious torment means that we can have trouble finding a place where we can go to church and feel accepted and welcome. Some of us are finding our way into the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church. And so I am pleased to have with us today Robin Perry and Ian Markham to discuss this. Robin is a well-known advocate of a universal restoration approach, the author and co-author of a number of popular books on the topic, as well as an ordained priest in the Anglican Church. Robin's books include The Evangelical Universalist, Worshiping Trinity, and A Larger Hope, Volume 2, Universal Salvation from the Reformation to the 19th Century. Ian Markham is an Episcopal priest and the Dean and President of Virginia Theological Seminary since August 2007. Previously, he served at Hartford Seminary in Connecticut as Dean and Professor of Theology and Ethics. Ian is the author of a number of books as well, including Understanding Christian Doctrine and Episcopal Questions, Episcopal Answers, Exploring the Christian Faith. Welcome, Robin and Ian, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to begin with a general question, which is this. What do you think is driving renewed interest in a Christian universalist approach, which wants to affirm the salvation of all, as well as affirming the historic core of the Christian faith, as summarized in the Trinitarian faith of the early church and outlined in the Apostles and Nicene creeds? Why do you think there is so much renewed interest in this? (laughs) Who'd like to go first? (laughs) I'm delighted if you lead the way, Robin. <laughs> okay, so Robin Robin Perry steps to the plate. Well, in America, you step to the plate. Okay. Um, what, well, I suppose a lot of it is folk who are starting from within an Orthodox Christian position and, and who basically are, are comfortable and feel happy with that. And they don't, they have no great urge to, to move from it. But at the same time, they feel very uncomfortable about um, some of the traditional teachings on hell in particular, which are extremely discomforting. But maybe maybe they've thought that that just was part of the package. And there's a growing awareness that actually it, it, it isn't necessarily part of the package. And so the thought that you could that you could remain orthodox while not having to carry that burden is is rather attractive to a growing number of people. So I think it's, for a lot of folk at any rate, it's, it's simply that. It's a way to affirm the faith they've always loved, but to do it in a way that they feel they can live with. 
All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Robin. Ian, what are your thoughts? I think a significant factor actually is the uh, sociological reality of communities of greater diversity. So if you look at the last 100 years, immigration around the world has been a significant factor. And that means increasingly people living in neighborhoods where they have a Jewish neighbor, they have a Muslim friend, they have Sikhs and Baha'is around the corner. And that means that they've got a very tangible present, um, which needs to be theologically thought through. In other words, in a universe where you're surrounded by people who are just like you, it's pretty easy to think to yourself, well, everybody else uh, is clearly in error, misguided, and deserve the consequences of their sin and going to hell. But when you're in a situation where actually uh, you become friendly uh, as you stand watching your kids play soccer with somebody who's of another faith tradition, then you find yourself pausing and saying, okay, Here's a person who clearly loves their kids and loves their spouse and has similar values to me in a thousand ways. How am I going to make sense of this person in terms of God's providential activity and their eternal destiny? And and the interesting thing is that actually the traditions always had space to accommodate uh, a generous affirmation of their salvific status, their, their salvation status before God. And I think people are just tapping into a tradition that's always been there and suddenly discovering it and making it part of their own theology. I mean, that's actually true historically, going back to the 19th century when there were reports, the missions movement went out and there were reports coming in back to Britain uh, of Ant of America uh, from missionaries about people all over the world and, and never in the history of the church, had the church been so aware of how many people there were <laughs> who weren't part of the church. And and also um, increasing numbers of stories of how ineffective often um, preaching hell was in terms of leading to conversions. And so lots of these stories would come back from missionaries. And this started to, it was one of the things that led to some of the discomfort in the church in the 19th century, at least in Britain. Um, like are that many people going to hell because they are that and 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 when we tell them about hell, they're even less likely to become believers. So uh, so that was part of the thing that led to this reevaluation of of hell. And of course, in America, what's interesting is hell was never just confined to non-Christians. There are plenty of Christians who took the view that, for example, Roman Catholics are not saved, and they're probably going to hell. Perhaps one or two sneak through, but most of them don't. You know, so you end up with a, a theology that's often very provincial, where, where literally it's just me, my friends, my family, people who are just like me. And then you end up with this huge issue around theodicy. You know, what on earth is God doing? Letting all these people live and have lives and all of them are going to hell. I mean, it's like the vast majority of people are going to hell on some theologies. And and that becomes really difficult when you're trying to make sense of what God's doing. And, and, and the Bible. And the Bible. <laughs> make sense of the Bible. 
and God's catastrophic failure to bring about his purposes for his creatures. Yeah. Well, what I've noticed is that people will have some type of authentic spiritual experience in a Christian setting. And then they will want to continue to investigate that. They get into further biblical studies, the theological studies. Then they start maybe philosophically reflecting on the logical coherence of their faith. And then you can run into a um, kind of a philosophical conflict. Like, Robin, you, I think, ran into this when you became convinced that it was possible for God to save people while preserving their free will. And if that was possible... Why on earth wouldn't God want to do that with everybody? And so it was your actual your in, your desire to take your intellectual pursuit to the highest level that ran you into a certain philosophical logical conundrum that could only be solved by a universalist construal of the faith. So um, I think that you're not the only one that runs into that has that journey. It starts out with some real experience and mm-hmm. maybe you know it starts out in a in a very provincial i think ian i listened to an interview with you and you grew up in a very fundamentalist kind of place and robin uh, your story is that you came to christianity during a charismatic renewal so mm-hmm. there are both these environments that you know are i would would not say categorize them as terribly intellectual but you had real spiritual experiences there and then that propelled you Nevertheless, then to try to make sense of all that, and the more you tried to make sense of it, the more universalist construal of the faith was where you could finally coherently hold all of that together. Well, back and back in the 90s, when I met Ian, he might not even remember this, but I can recall a conversation in Sutton Coldfield. Um, and he told me it was a very Anglican way of doing theology to think about scripture, reason and tradition. Um and I thought, oh, I thought that was just an evangelical thing. <laughs> he was telling me it was a liberal thing. And and I was thinking, I guess it's just a Christian thing. Um, so scripture, reason and tradition. And this is how, the, it's a, we, I mean, we'll go on to talk about Anglicanism, as you said. And that is a very traditional threefold stool, uh, as the Anglicans sometimes refer to it. Uh, Richard Back, was that a Richard Baxter? Anyway, I can't remember who's had the threefold stool. Um, Richard Hooker normally gets the credit. Oh, Hooker, that's the guy. Richard yeah, Hooker. Richard Hooker, who and I you love. Get, and he's he's got the, the Thomas Aquinas of Anglicanism. Yeah, and then you have the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which adds the experience. <laughs> exactly, which I which I kind of include within reason. In fact, I don't. I have it slightly. I set them all slightly differently. Well, but that's he, you know, boring. Ian, you don't want to hear about both, that. Both you and Ian talked about the experience then of running in that the, the lived experience of running into people who have different beliefs, different belief systems. And yeah. so that creates a, a tension and you're trying to resolve that. So it comes out of an actual experience of, of being and around And sometimes it's people, people in your family. Things. Yeah. Even if you live along, among a lot of folk who agree with you, if your brothers or sisters or kids or mum or dad or whatever fall into the category of those you think are automatically doomed to hell, and particularly if they've died and you think there's no hope for them, that's kind of a heavy thing to live with. Mm-hmm. I mean, then the gospel kind of becomes the bad news uh, rather than good news. But my point was that, um, that, script, that, that thinking theologically using your reason it's not an unchristian thing, but it's the way Christians have always tried to, 
to think theologically. Um, and scripture, reason and tradition is a very Anglican way of doing it. So we do want to use our brains as we think about stuff. Yeah, I mean, reason's God's gift to humanity to uh, discern what's true. And uh, therefore, the exercise of reason, reason is never an act of infidelity or an act of compromise or an act of human hubris. It is simply using the God-given gift made possible through the Imago Day, through the image of God, to actually use your mind to think through your faith and some of the complicated questions that the experience generates. Well, what I'd like to do next is just ask you this question. Um, in your experience, how has Christian universalism been tolerated within the related traditions of the Anglican and the Episcopal Church? I think Robin should do Anglican and I'll do Episcopal. Okay. Well, we're only speaking about our experience anyway. <laughs> right, You're, within this, your experience. Yeah, within my experience. Mm -hmm. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, I think if you do Anglican, I'll do Episcopal. Right. Well, yeah. So, um, I, so that is the correct order. Up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I didn't grow up <laughs> going to church at all. Um, but but and I and when I became a believer, it wasn't within an Anglican church. But in my heart, I was increasingly becoming Anglican for about 25 years before I formally became Anglican uh, back in 2012. And in my experience, um, I have had almost no pushback whatsoever. So the reaction has been, for the most part, complete disinterest. <laughs> I mean, nobody cares what I think about the subject. In fact, most people don't even know. It just does they don't ask. It doesn't come up. Um, those who do know mostly are supportive. I my bishop's very supportive. Lots of my priest colleagues are very supportive. Um, I had one priest, not within the diocese, who said it was my belief that God would redeem everybody was not compatible with Anglicanism. Um, but the reason they thought that, I think, is because they thought it wasn't compatible with Scripture and Anglicans see Scripture as uh, where the faith is revealed. And this is what all priests are expected to affirm, that the faith is revealed in Scripture. And so they think Scripture taught this. So it couldn't be compatible with Anglicanism. Um, I think they've misunderstood scripture. So I, you know, I just didn't, but I just don't get a lot of pushback. Lots of Anglicans aren't universalists, but they're pretty tolerant bunch really here. Um, sometimes perhaps more, more through indifference than anything. Uh, but but uh, those, those who know and care often, uh, so, you know, they're often more than happy to uh, accommodate that as an option within the spectrum of Anglican belief. Okay. Thank you, Robin. Ian? So, as Anglicanism spread in North America, um, I think some distinctive emphases did emerge. The first is we were always a tradition that had to embrace a significant spectrum. Uh, so, one end of the spectrum, we had Bishop Spong, for example. Um, who was a very radical bishop. 
I mean, he not only was a universalist, but he also um, did not ascribe to the traditional understanding of the incarnation, did not believe in the bodily resurrection, did not ascribe to the uh, virgin birth. You know, so he was a very radical voice in the church, but actually played a role in keeping some people who were racked with doubt inside the conversation. And then you had at the other end of the spectrum, a huge influence of James Packer, who actually was in the Church of Canada for much of his career, originally from Bristol. Uh, and he was, of course, an advocate of a much more traditional, almost Calvinist uh, understanding of uh, soteriology. Um, so you have this spectrum in the church, and, and that's remained true. You know, we are continuing to live with that spectrum. The official position of the Episcopal Church, though, you can track a clear shift. Um, in 1991, in the great decade of evangelism uh, inspired by Bishop Carey, Archbishop Carey, um, we had this uh, commission on evangelism which took the line that uh, fidelity to the biblical witness requires a commitment to the possibility and perhaps inevitability of what they call lostness apart from Christ. Uh, and then by uh, 1996, 97, when interreligious dialogue came to the fore, and certainly by the most recent uh, General Convention documentation in 2021, you'll see now uh, a sea change. The center of gravity of the Episcopal Church is deeply committed to an incarnational understanding of the faith. We still love Jesus. Uh, we still take scripture seriously. But the view now is that that, uh, that that truth involves a radical generosity and inclusivity by God. And it's partly triggered by other relationships with other Christian traditions. That's a factor. But what's really interesting is, say, you can go, you can see the shift. The the decade of evangelism still had a fairly conservative text. Taking into religious dialogue seriously made it more generous. But when you get to an ecological sensitivity, an environmental sensitivity, suddenly we've got the church taking seriously that text in Romans 8, all creations groaning for the appearance of the sons of God. And we're talking about creation being redeemed well for heaven's sake if creation's redeemed then surely our hindu buddhist jewish muslim friends uh must be redeemed it sounds a little absurd to say god makes some sort of provision for the great oak and for uh, the dolphin but mm -hmm. not for humanity so now the, the latest documents are clear um, we are a tradition where the center of gravity of the Episcopal Church is committed to the view that if you properly interpret what we learn of God in Christ, you're committed to a generous theology of grace and inclusion. I think the Church of England is hard to pick. I mean, it, it also has this very wide range. So you have conservative evangelicals, charismatic evangelicals, kind of one end. Uh, through liberal evangelicals, liberals, Anglo-Catholics, I mean, conservative Anglo-Catholics, liberal Anglo-Catholics, and a whole range of views on uh, universalism and, and, and those kind of issues. But you can track historically uh, real tonal shifts similar to what Ian's talking about through 
um, the second half of the 19th century, where there are several prominent Anglicans, um, starting with F.D. Morris, who was the professor of theology at King's College. Um, and, and, and he published uh, an, art, an, an article in a collection of books in 1853 that got him the sack <laughs> not because it was universalist, but just because it said that eternal hell didn't mean eternal hell. You know, it was all about relationship, the quality of life rather than quantity. Eternal life is about that. Um, but he contemplated the possibility of options after death for ongoing transformation and a hope and an agnosticism, but it was all in the hands of God's mercy and God was loving. And, so. and that got him the sack, even though technically he wasn't universalist. And and several other prominent um, clergy people and theologians in the coming decades uh, published books. And you see a decreasing um, hostility going on. So in 1859, uh, was it? 1860, Essays and Reviews, which was a landmark uh, text in Anglican history. And there was super controversy around a couple of the essays in it, one of which talked about uh, possibilities of after death, it's like, no, most people aren't prepared to be with Christ. So it's like we're little seeds that God is still working on and there's there's opportunities for progress. And it was very ambivalent, but it sort of hinted gently at universalism. And that caused an uproar and the guy was suspended. It was taken to the church courts and it was said, this isn't consistent with the Athanasian Creed because the Athanasian Creed was a requirement for all clergy to affirm back then. Um, and the Athanasian Creed doesn't mention hell as one of the statements of belief, but within the framework or the crust of the document, as it were, um, it basically consigns anyone who doesn't agree with what's affirmed in the creed to eternal torment. Um, and so so basically in 1862, there's this guy called, called Wilson, E.H.B. Uh, e. Wilson, and he has this essay in es published in Essays and Reviews. I'll just recap the whole thing. He has this essay published in Essays and Reviews, which is this landmark book in 1860. Um, and he floats very tentatively or hints at the idea that maybe everyone will be saved, although he doesn't actually say that. But what he does say, just very briefly, is that there's transformation in the afterlife. God doesn't finish with us. Death isn't the point of no return. He's suspended from his job because this is considered to be inconsistent with the Athanasian Creed. It's gone to a church court. He appeals two years later, 1862. He wins the appeal. The judgment is, yeah, there's a lot of space, scope for different interpretations of the of the creed. And this sort of wider hope that, that Wilson has is compatible with the faith of the Church of England. There's a massive outcry. Anglo-Catholics in Oxford rally together. Um, clergy across the country, the Archbishops of York and Canterbury express their sympathy with this idea that, no, the Church of England must believe in eternal conscious torment. <laughs> it has to. Uh, so 11,000 of them sign, thousands of them sign this petition. Um, but within 20, 25 years, the whole thing's blown over and, and, and nobody. So when in the, in the subsequent decades, um, 1881, 1884, um, 1878 even, Frederick Farrer, Edric Plumtree, Thomas Allen, their Anglican clergy, some very eminent, the, you know, Dean of Westminster, uh, one of them, the Dean of um, Wells Cathedral, they write these books that express this hope 
for a wider salvation. And there's hard, by the time you get to the last of these, there's hardly anyone protesting. They go, oh, whatever. <laughs> and the most interesting of them all, from an Anglican perspective, I think, I hope I'm not talking too much, Ian, is Thomas okay. Thomas Allen, who uh, I did do a definitive edition of his right. Christ yeah, that's great. You, and Robin is holding up the book Christ Triumphant. Right, I am. Um, and what's really interesting about Alan is he's an Anglican priest. And he's also a patristic scholar, and he makes what was to that date the most um, thorough survey of patristic sources to show that belief in the salvation of all people was actually a very ancient and widespread Christian belief, and you can find it attested all over the place. But he argues, and this is where it's interesting for Anglicanism, that actually, although most Anglicans aren't, don't believe in universal salvation, or at least didn't in his day, he said, actually, it expresses the heart of what Anglicans say in their prayer book, which meant more than the traditional belief. And he, and he goes through a whole bunch of prayers and collects that, that Anglicans pray, hymns that they use, um, scripture texts that they like to use, uh, things that talk about Christ who takes away the sin of the world you know, or died and destroyed death and stuff that language that Christians use all the time. And he said, well, stop and think about what we're saying here. In our prayer book, we pray this. We pray that all people would acknowledge Christ's lordship and would follow him. You know, we we worship him because he died for all. And so he says, even within Anglicanism, within the very forms of our prayers and worship, there is this leaning towards this wider hope. And we haven't seen, we haven't recognized it for what, what we're actually saying. Mm -hmm. Um, and and then his other object, and then and then I'll stop. <laughs> and his other point that was interesting is that that actually the creeds, the thirty nine articles, all the things that Anglicans sort of swear by, none of these stuff say anything about eternal hell. Um, but they talk about eternal life. Um, and he says, and actually, eternal hell is a challenge for orthodoxy because it threatens all sorts of orthodox belief about God's love and God's goodness and Christ's atonement and Christ's work of salvation. It, it threatens core orthodox doctrines. And so rather than needing eternal health to preserve orthodoxy, it's actually a cuckoo in the nest. It's something that is alien to the, to the orthodox faith and threatens it. And we're easier to be orthodox if you get rid of it and become a universalist. So that's how to be a proper Anglican, he's arguing, uh, is is to be a universalist. Okay, well, thanks, Robin. Now, Ian, uh, I'd like to pick up back with you about the Episcopal Church and about some maybe anxieties that would have arisen about universalism if it's sort of a, a maybe it's kind of a gateway to maybe something like with John Shelby Spong, which would mean to sort of undermine other key key doctrines of the Christian faith? I think one anxiety that many very faithful Christians have is that once they start questioning a core belief, like, say, the inerrancy of Scripture or that uh, evolution is compatible with Genesis 1 or that all persons are ultimately saved through the grace of God, then before they'll know where they are, they'll end up being one of those liberals uh, who believes nothing. And, you know, it's a slippery slope argument. You know, once this falls, then that will fall and that will fall and that will fall. And before you know where you are, uh, you don't have a faith at all. And I think one 
responsibility we have is to just push back on that picture and just say, look, um, I love the Lord Jesus. I'm aware and persuaded that in Jesus of Nazareth, um, God is revealed. Um, and I seek to faithfully witness to that truth in my life uh, every single day. Um, and it's because I love the Lord Jesus. It's because I'm seeking to learn from the eternal word made flesh. It's because I'm seeking to learn from scripture that I've come to the view that God's grace in the end is irresistible, that it's going to overwhelm and touch every human life. It might take some time, but it'll get there in the end. You know, and I think uh, in a weird sort of way, uh, in Britain it was Don Cupid, in the United States it's uh, John Shelby Spong. These voices uh, are a real problem for some people because they're an illustration of the dangers of believing in universalism. So I think it's very important that we present this not as, you know, we're disregarding the witness of scripture, we're disregarding what the tradition says, we're disregarding, um, you know, the, the claims, the historic claims of the church. But instead, we're seeking to be faithful to what scripture says, faithful to what we learn of God in Christ, faithful to the traditions of the church, and really think through an account of the faith that is um, embedded in our sources, in our authorities. Uh, so it isn't just our wishful thinking, we just would like a world where everybody's saved because it's much nicer. It's because we think it's true. And I think mm -hmm. that's a very important part of yeah. what needs to be said. Well, really. I have a I'm uh, recently retired uh, from the ministry of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and um, so our church we have communion, but we it's a very low uh, liturgy, and um, uh, so I'm retired and I'm having fun visiting some different churches, and I'm really enjoying uh, visiting the Episcopal Church, and um, I have a friend who says the nice thing about the Episcopal Church is says she says. The liturgy is like an adult in the room that is that is that is leading us all together. So the liturgy is the adult in the room, yeah. which I thought was an interesting. You know, it's a it's a wise it is a wise and informed presence, historically uh, leading us in the present. And so I thought that was a beautiful way to put that. And and that kind of thing doesn't exist in in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ because the liturgy you know, is not that it's not formative in that way. So, um, but the idea, Robin, that you were saying is that Thomas um, Allen was was appealing to the liturgy is that the liturgy has a formative role within the Anglican and Episcopal Church. It has a formative presence that w w hasn't been part of my church tradition. And so then coming and visiting an Episcopal church and experiencing sort of the role of the liturgy in its commentary and what it's trying to say, I think that's an interesting perspective on, on this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, well, um, sorry, I'm just <laughs> Ian suggesting something <laughs> I should say. <laughs> um, yeah, did you want me to say that, Ian, or did you want to say that? 
Well, t- let me start with. Um, fortunately, all this can be edited out. This, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or I wouldn't have said what I just said. <laughs> let me just say, you know, it is so true that uh, liturgy shapes faith in the uh, liturgical traditions. I mean, so there is that famous expression, lex orandi, lex credendi, you know, the law of what is prayed is the law of what's believed. In other words, our liturgy really frames our understanding of what God's like. And of course, the interesting thing about Anglican Episcopal liturgy is it's very biblical. I mean, when you think about it, in most when you do a Eucharist, you're supposed to have an Old Testament lesson, a psalm, an epistle, and a gospel. I mean, that's a lot of Bible. And then, of course, the biblical witness infuses all those colleagues and all the prayers. There are lots of little allusions. And then you have a structure. You know, you celebrate the season of the church year right at the beginning in the gathering. You then flow into uh, listening to the word, you know, the, the written word in the uh, Old Testament lesson and the epistle, uh, the the eternal word in the gospel, and then you have the proclaimed word in the preacher. So, you know, we're learning what God's really like, and we're learning from the biblical witness what God's really like. And then you go into, you know, confident we know what God's like into the prayers, and then we have the celebration of the peace, and then we go into the table. So you have this sort of liturgical framing that means that you're utterly rooted, you know, there are guardrails, you know, this is this is how we're supposed to be. These are, these are parameters in which we can believe, think, reflect, analyze uh, within those parameters. And then, you know, in that space, you're invited to really grapple with who God is and what God's doing. And in that space, you can come to that sense of what God's done in Christ um, has a universal import and significance. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right to say our liturgy shapes our believing. That's a core, essential insight of the Episcopal Church and, and shared, of course, with our Anglican friends around the globe. Yeah. Robin, you want to add anything to that? Uh, well, I'm. It, <laughs> you can edit this out because it's it's not really adding anything much. I mean. It's, I remember when I became a Christian and became a believer and I didn't have a clue what to say to God. I mean, not a clue. They said, just pray. I had no idea what you say or how you talk to God. Um, so that's why I found um, some of the, the liturgical stuff, which wasn't the tradition I was in, but I, w- I went to the shops and I bought morning and evening prayer from the bookshop. Mm-hmm. And I would use this because I thought, well, this is the kind of thing I should say. And it shapes the way you think about God and how you think about yourself and how you think about yourself in relationship to God and other people because you're praying it. And then it makes your theological reflection something that emerges out of that worship and feeds back into that worship. So there's a sort of virtuous uh, feedback loop rather than a vicious one. Uh, Hopefully, uh, you know, your theology is shaped and becomes an expression of worship, an expression of your devotion. And so this use of the mind we talked about earlier, thinking uh, reasonably about the faith, is, I think, it would be an Anglican thing to say, to say that's supposed to be an expression of your love of God, an expression of worship. How you live the faith is part of how you do that. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let, let me make a uh, let me make a generalization of something that I hear uh, here in the United States, and it, it runs something like this: um, for people who are maybe they've been in an evangelical tradition, and now they're wanting to rethink their this doctrine of hell, and they're maybe maybe they come to a Christian universalism or maybe a near Christian universalism, and they feel like they have to leave their evangelical setting that what I hear happening is sometimes evangelicals that are still more socially conservative, especially about issues around sexual orientation, want to investigate the Anglican church in the United States. Whereas people who are, who are anxious to go to a church where they can uh, feel like there'll be full inclusion of LGBTQ folks, um, they want to go, they head sometimes to the Episcopal church where they feel like they're going to, uh, be more comfortable there. So uh, that's just a generalization. How true do you think that generalization is in the United States? And I don't know what, what the situation that would be in the UK, Robin. For the United States, I think, I think there's tr- certainly truth in that analysis. Um, and of course, what also happens is um, there are plenty of center-right Episcopal churches and congregations in the United States, especially in the South and in Texas, where incidentally 50% of Episcopalians are going to church every week. So um, there are, we, we remain uh, a, a denomination with uh, lots of people who are hesitant or nervous about full inclusion of LGBT plus persons within the Episcopal Church, let alone those who then gravitate to the Anglican Church in North America so-called ACNA, but that, I think your critique is right. Um, and I think, but I, I would want to sort of say that, you know, I think most congregations live with pluralism, theological pluralism, political pluralism, and pluralism around homosexuality and uh, other issues. Um, and in many ways, I hope that's true, even, even if I suspect it might be getting less so. Because one of the great sadnesses for me is a world where we just gravitate to bubbles and we never find a conversation partner outside our bubble. And I think it's called, Twitter. It's called Twitter and it's very corrosive. I mean, it's very, very corrosive of civic society, uh, you know, Christian community, uh, loving your neighbor. I mean, you know, it, it is very, very damaging. So I, I do make a general plea that although I think your generalization of the United States is true, um, I I do would love to see more rectors just saying that I'm committed to the conversation. I'm committed to, uh, you know, we come in our brokenness before God. We come to the table to be fed. And where we are on this or that particular question is not the primary issue uh, on a Sunday morning. We do need to be a community that can talk those issues through but that's not a control on who's welcome in that particular community. Mm-hmm. So Robin, about that, uh, can you say a little bit about the Anglican church in uh, in the UK as, as opposed to maybe the Anglican church in America? Yeah, well, a little bit. I mean, the issue is massive, uh, but in brief, we we don't have the two Anglican churches. I mean, there is a tiny little free Anglican church um, which has a few people in it, which is conservative evangelically. Uh, but 
the Church of England uh, still covers the spectrum. And on these issues, LGBTQ issues, um, you get the whole spectrum from very conservative to very liberal. And for the most part, though not exclusively, evangelicals tend to be at the more conservative end, though some of them aren't. And uh, Anglo-Catholics are divided. So you and within particular congregations, they it's not they don't tend to take a side on the issue. It just doesn't come up. It, it depends on the priest uh, that's there. So it's not something that's discussed all the time. You go to your service and you you worship, and don't there's not it doesn't even arise except occasionally. Within the Church of England, of course, the issue is uh, massive at the minute uh, because of discussions about whether we should allow prayers that bless people who are in same-sex relationships or not, because we're not allowed to marry them. We're the only church in Britain that legally isn't allowed to marry. And there's, that's complicated reasons to do with being an established church. <laughs> which is weird because the law the law of the land says you can have gay marriage but because the law canon law of the church of england but unlike other anglican churches is also part of british law and that defines the canons define marriage as between a man and a woman and so that is also part of british law and so legally we're not allowed to do any marriages or it would be against the law. It wouldn't count. It wouldn't be a legal ceremony if we did one. So lots of debates about this. Hmm. Well, let me ask you then, what would, let's say that somebody is curious, that they have come to a Christian universalist position or a near Christian universalist position. What advice would you give them if they are um, wanting to try to visit an Episcopal church or an Anglican church? Should they go I noticed that in the Episcopal church that I've been visiting, it says a uh, priest in charge, you know, which sort of gives you the sense that, well, if I want to find out anything here, I should probably just go to the priest in charge. Um, it says that what is, is that what you should do? You just uh, maybe go visit the service and then ask to speak with the, uh, with the priest and just tell him to sit, tell him or her the situation and just see what they think about that particular congregation. I think that's very good advice. I mean, um, you know, the the uh, first of all, you know, attending is of course that first step, and then you actually place the issue of universalism perhaps in a bigger frame. Mm. This is a liturgical tradition that's focused on taking scripture very seriously, attending to it very carefully, and then always um, bringing our brokenness before God and allowing God to feed us through the sacrament. So that that locates what you're thinking about. And then, yeah, in, in your integrity, you want to talk a little bit through uh, the journey you made. And you're now in a place where you think conscious eternal torment is incompatible with your understanding of who God is and what you've learned about God through Christ. And you share that with the priest and the priest will be very pleased to talk to you and the priest will use it as an opportunity to give you a sense of where we stand as a tradition 
on those sort of questions. I'm 100% sure that every single person who has a conversation with an Episcopal priest will find that their semi-universalism or universalism is welcomed as uh, a legitimate and honoured viewpoint in that congregation. Um, I can't imagine an exception to that in the Episcopal Church. And, uh, and therefore, they should be confident. They're, they won't be judged. They won't be told they're on the way to hell because they're heretics. They won't be, you know, they'll be genuinely affirmed as, yeah, we get exactly where you're coming from and why you believe that. Okay. Robin, what, what about that? Would same kind of advice going to the, well, going yeah. to an Anglican church? Yeah. I, and depending on the Anglican church, you might find when you have the conversation with the priest, the priest will say, well, you're very welcome to come and be here and worship with us and take the Eucharist. Uh, but you will need to understand that we will be preaching hell. <laughs> so some churches will do that. Um, but most, it doesn't, it's not an issue that would, would come up that often. So I think if, you know, so often people say to me, can you tell me a universalist church to go to? I'm not meaning the denomination universalists. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go to a church that's full of universalists. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I personally, I think, nah, I, I've never wanted that. I want to go to a church full of people who love God and are stumbling their way forward with God. And, and if some of them are, if, if so long as they're willing to tolerate me being a universalist and they're not going to kick me out, um, I'm more than happy to stumble along with them. I don't want to find a bunch of people that, because because believe, universalism isn't the most important thing about the Christian faith, right? So let's focus on stuff that's important, like Jesus and, and God and loving them and, and each other and find people you can do that with who will put up with you. Go there. I think a lot of Anglicans are very comfortable with people can be in different places on the journey of faith. So we don't all need to arrive at a particular destination, you know, where we all agree about every single issue. And I think that is true both of the Church of England and the Episcopal mm -hmm, Church. Mm -hmm. that there's a sense of, um, you know, we're not going to start reading passages from, I don't know, the Quran or from Shakespeare instead of the gospel, right? So, you know, get that. Our liturgy is our guide, you know, guardrails. I think that's, you know, so there, there's, that's there. And we're not going to introduce new statements of faith in addition to the creeds. Mm -hmm. So we're not going to start saying you've got to be a premillennial dispensationalist who believes in eternal hell and in the chosen and the elect are the only ones who are saved or anything like that. We're not going to do that either. We're going to say this is who we are. We, we affirm the Nicene Creed uh, in the Sunday Eucharistic service. And we recognize that there'll be seasons when you're tormented by doubt because you've lost a loved one and you're not sure how you make sense of that. And there'll be questions that people are still thinking through about you know, how best you relate to persons who are transgendered or whatever. Um, and, and sure, there'll be some who are universalists and some who say, well, I'm not sure if I can quite get that there yet, but 
I'm on the way. And so I think that, but that so there's a strong sense of faith is a journey within parameters. Mm-hmm. And basically, you know, you can participate. The, the liturgy becomes like a foil, you know, it becomes a sort of backdrop. And you let the liturgy be that sort of still center in your life. And you have conversations with it all the time. You know, how do I make sense of you descended to the dead in the creed? What's that mean? Uh, or to hell uh, in some versions? What does all that mean? You know, you can have conversations uh, mm-hmm. with with the with the liturgy as you seek to be a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So my final question then for you, you all to consider is, if you were to look, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, best case scenario for where, where things would be with regard to the acceptance of Christian universalism within the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, what would you, what would you want that to look like? I think the trend is settled and clear. Um, Out of fidelity to what we learn of God in Christ, we're increasingly confident that God does not give up on any human life and that ultimately uh, all are redeemed through what God's done in Christ and will enjoy the presence of God for eternity. I think that's a pretty settled trajectory. I think it's, if anything, going to get stronger. I don't see any trend that will um, thwart that. I think it's a, a theological insight that's slowly becoming settled. You know, in the same sense, there's nobody in the Episcopal Church who would really want to argue that natural selection and evolution's faults, for example. So when it comes to universalism, that's becoming increasingly part of our set of assumptions about our theological worldview. I think um, you say, where would I, where would it ideally be? Right, ideally be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I, so ideally, I wouldn't want to see, I wouldn't want to see the church saying, we believe in universal salvation. I think that's not what I want. Um, what I would want would be that the view would be um, accepted and welcomed as a genuine expression of faithful Christian theological reflection and practice. And so it would be acknowledged to be something that's not imposed upon the faith from outside, because, as Ian said earlier, because we want to be nice, we want to think nice things about God. Uh, but it would be recognised as something that emerges from genuine Christian and integrally Christian convictions arising from scripture and tradition and experience, Christian experience and our reasoned reflection on those things. Um, so if it was generally recognised as being that, a true expression or a, a, explorative, tentative perhaps expression of of genuine Christian faith with Christian motives and biblical groundings and rooted in the tradition, then that would be ideal for me. Yeah. Well, in, in, um, I guess in the Christian church, disciples of Christ, one of the advantages that I had was that the, that the main focus was, well, what are we here to do? We're here to believe 
in God. We're going to follow Jesus to the best of our understanding as our Lord and Savior. We're all going to find that this is a humbling journey because he leads us perfectly, and we're going to all be humbled as we realize that we're not following perfectly. So that should both encourage us to want to grow spiritually, but also foster a sense of humility and a desire not to judge each other along the way, because we all see that we're falling short, even though it's the direction that we want to go. So the good news is the kingdom of God is here. We can participate in it now. It's amazing and wonderful. We can have fullness of life right now. But if we decide we don't want to do that, we walk a path of destruction. And where that path of destruction leads has been a matter of conversation and debate over the history of the Christian tradition. Some have thought it leads to eternal conscious torment. Some have thought it leads to annihilation. Some have thought it finally leads to an ultimate restoration. But that is a conversation that we can have. We can have communion together. We can worship together. We can be together. Um, I guess that's kind of what I'm hoping for, that, that, the, that Christianity moves. If I could do anything, and I guess what I'm trying to do in my own way is to uh, move the Christian uh, faith that more in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I th- and that's helpful. I mean, you know, sure, there's always going to be pluralism about any theological judgment within the Christian tradition where we'll have to live with uh, different interpretations of certain key themes. You know, how exactly do we understand the Trinity? Is it more a social trinity, as advocated by Jürgen Moltmann? Or is it more um, a, uh, you know, each member of the Trinity reflects a particular work that God does in the world, a more classical account of the Trinity? Or when it comes to, you know, the relationship of God and time, is God outside time and therefore timeless, or is God inside time and therefore everlasting? These are questions that Christians with integrity will disagree about, and 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 therefore all congregations need to live with some sort of sense of a spectrum with different positions within it. But the important thing is to value the integrity of different positions, be willing to listen carefully to them, and appreciate and even celebrate the dialogue and the conversation. Well, I think that's maybe a good a good place for us to wind up in a in a vision of a world where we we do take our faith seriously, but we're able to engage in civil discourse with each other and have good and profitable conversations, even with people who might not share our, our ultimate theological convictions in the same way. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.